The message will be coming out of 2 Thessalonians, verses 1 through 3. Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is only fitting, because your faith is increasing abundantly, and the love of each and every one of you towards one another grows ever greater. morning you may be seated please I've done a lot of talking the last few days and near the end of the Sunday school hour I began to lose my voice can I ask a favor of someone in the church can I have a warm bottle of water please just in case who's going to be that initiative there you go. thank you no, th- no, sir, no thank you. Are we going to forget or ignore that the line, Redeemer, I live to proclaim it, was a part of this song? We just get right over it. Beautiful worship. Those of you that are watching online, um, we had a beautiful time of worship this morning through song. And um, we hope that you would be able to come back and participate with us as well. Um, We love you and we thank you that you are able to participate online. Today's message from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 can be titled, Growing in Faith and Love. According to the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul took three different missionary journeys. And on these journeys, the Apostle Paul and his missionary team planted and founded several churches that we get to read the letters that he wrote to them. In Acts chapters 13 through 15 is the Apostle's first missionary journey where Barnabas joined him and they visited the region of Galatia and they planted several churches in that area. In Acts chapters 16 through 18 is the apostle's second missionary journey where he returned to those churches in Galatia, strengthening the brothers that were there. And there the apostle received a vision from a man in Macedonia asking the apostle to come over to his region and to minister. Thank you so much. The final missionary, the third missionary trip, happened in Acts chapters 19 and 20. The Apostle Paul visits Ephesus. He returns through Macedonia where he had that vision. And he ends up in Jerusalem where he is arrested by the Romans, sent to Rome, and the book of Acts ends. So Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians the area of Macedonia was a part of his second missionary journey. And on that trip, he was joined by Silas. If you remember, after the first missionary journey, some Jews protested that the Gentiles of Galatia were not circumcised. 
And Paul took that controversy to Jerusalem where he met with the church there, including Peter and James. And he brought this controversy before them. And the apostles agreed that the Gentiles should not be persuaded to be circumcised, but they should abstain from sexual immorality and things offered to idols. And the apostles, to encourage the churches of Galatia, send a letter to them that Paul carries, and Silas is one of the men who's chosen by the church to join him. It is there on this return to the Galatian churches in the city of Lystra where they meet a young man named Timothy. We're told in 1 Timothy that the young man came to faith through the faithful witness of his mother and his grandmother. But according to Acts chapter 16, when Paul visited the city of Lystra, it was the brothers who were there that were also instrumental in Timothy's faith, the growth of his faith. And the scripture says that the brothers spoke well of Timothy. And that persuaded Paul to take the young man on this missionary journey. Paul was convinced to add Timothy. Why is that important? Why is Silas and Timothy joining Paul important for our context this morning? Because those are the two men that are helping Paul write this letter to the church of Thessalonia. Paul says in chapter 1, we... Paul, Silas, and Timothy ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you is increasing for one another. So right off the bat, the Apostle Paul gets to the theme of this letter. His purpose in writing this letter is to help the church to increase, to grow in their faith, and also to grow in the love that they have for one another. That's his purpose. Keep it up. You've been doing a great job, the apostle says, but we want to encourage you to keep it up. And that's the purpose of the church. Our purpose is to continually grow in faith and to continue to grow in love towards one another. So to grow in love towards God and to grow in love towards each other. And that's what we're going to examine this morning. I'm going to do my best to help you in growing in your faith this morning. What can we participate in? What can we actively do to submit to the Spirit for our sanctification? But before we do that, we must answer the question, should we? Is it necessary to grow in faith? and in love. And why? Why is it necessary to grow in faith and love? And this is why spiritual growth is necessary, because it's God's will for the church, period. It's God's will for the church. God's intention is not to save you and then just leave you where you are after your salvation. God's will for the church is is to not leave us at risk to the elements of sin, not to leave us at risk to the elements of the world. No, it is God's will for us, our sanctification. Paul says so in 1 Thessalonians 
chapter 4. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. God loves us enough than just to leave us where we are. He intends to save us and to bring us all the way to glorification. And so that bridge, that, that uh, ordo salutis, the, the order of salvation, once you become justified, once you are converted, once you are adopted into the family of God, the rest of your life involves your sanctification. And God's purpose is to turn you into the image of his son, to transform your life, to transform your mind, to finish transforming your heart, to finish, to finish transforming your will, your desires to be like Christ, to love the things of God, to love God. That's God's will for your life. So no, God's plan for us is not to leave us where we are, but to mature. If this were not so, then why would the scripture speak against being carnal? Why would the scripture warn us about falling backwards in the faith? If God's will for us is not our sanctification, why would there be judgment against those who remain as they are? And that's what we find in the scripture. Judgment and warning for those who do not have a desire to grow in the faith. There's warnings about falling away. The term sanctification in itself means progression. It describes an advancement. It describes a development of your faith. And this is necessary. Why? Here it is. So you don't shrink back. So you don't fall backwards. That's it. That's, that's the purpose of sanctification. So you don't lose what you claim to have. And we see in scripture a big warning of those. Those false conversions. Those people who they claim with their mouth but the words don't come from the heart. That they're saved. But when trials and tribulations come, and we'll get to this, we fall back and we fall away for those who are not sincere. Our faith shouldn't go backwards. Our love for the brothers and sisters should not languish. Listen to these scriptures. Hebrews 10, 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The author of Hebrews says, we're not like them. True believers are not like those who fall away. Instead, we are those who have faith and our faith is preserved. So our spiritual life should never shrink back. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1. Let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. If we are advancing in the faith... If we are growing in the faith, we're growing in our love, our spiritual life will not shrink back. Do you know where shrinking back ends up leaving you? In apostasy. Eventually, you'll shrink too far back and you will fall into the abyss of apostasy and that means you never truly believed. Apostasy describes false Christians who eventually lead the faith that they claim they once possessed, but they never truly did. 
You ever ask yourself, man, whatever happened to Jimmy? He came here, he was like a firecracker, man. He burst on the scene, he was, he was passionate, and all of a sudden, where'd he go? Because like a firecracker, that spark was over, like that. He didn't truly believe. He didn't progress in the faith. And he shrunk back until he completely left the faith that he once claimed to have. Because he never truly believed. So your sanctification, growing in faith, growing in love towards the brothers and sisters, vital to your spiritual life. It's a fruit of it. It's fruit. If you have faith, you will grow. You will mature. If you have faith, you will grow in love. It is a fruit of regeneration. John the Baptist was asked by those who came out to him, what do we do now? He says, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Do good to others. Love them. Don't take from them. Don't steal from them, but to love them. Because this is a sign of your salvation, a fruit of your regeneration. That you grow in your faith and you grow in love towards the brothers and the sisters. So now that we know that it's necessary, how does it happen? What can we do? What are the disciplines of spiritual maturity? Let's begin by addressing the faith part. How to grow in faith and later we'll address the growing in love. There are two ways in which the church grows in faith, the church member grows in faith. Number one, by participating in the ordinary means of grace. We'll explain what that is in a, in, in a minute, but by participating in the ordinary means of grace. And the second way we grow in faith, this is the unpleasant one, by trusting in the Lord during times of suffering. That's it. Those are the two ways. And you can't sidestep these things. You can't avoid them. You're a Christian. You, you must confront these two things. You must experience them for yourself. You must experience the ordinary means of grace. And we must experience and confront suffering. The term ordinary doesn't mean mundane. It doesn't mean unspectacular. When the church describes the ordinary means of grace... We're describing normalcy. God normally, he commonly uses these things to grow your faith. Well, what are these things? Scripture, prayer, the church ordinances, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. God normally uses these three things. Scripture, prayer, and for our sake today, the Lord's Supper, to grow your faith. To strengthen. He uses these things to communicate to your soul the gospel of Jesus Christ. He uses these things to communicate to your soul assurance of your salvation. Confidence that you really believe. So that every time you read the scripture, every time you pray to the Lord, when you participate in the Lord's Supper, the Lord, by His Spirit, is communicating to you the, the truth of what these things represent. And you grow. You grow in confidence. You grow in faith. You grow in assurance. Now to the world, these things are ordinary in a bad way, right? They are mundane. 
To the world, there's nothing special about these things. Scripture is just a book. Prayer is just words. The ordinances are merely water, bread, and a cup of liquid. That's to the world. But in a way, they're kind of right. Because minus the Spirit, these things absent from the power of the Holy Spirit, just words. That's why Jesus chides the Gentiles, right? He tells, he tells the disciples, don't be like the Gentiles when they pray because they want to be known for their long words, right? Because they're just mere words without the presence of the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit engages and the Holy Spirit is active and he participates in those prayers, that's what makes it a means of grace. And so the Holy Spirit must, must engage He makes those things effectual for you. An unbeliever can read 12 times the Gospel of John. He can read 12 hours a day of the Bible. And minus the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, he'll never understand. He'll never grasp. God's work will never be present in his life. But you add the power of the Holy Spirit, regeneration takes place. Prayer. We speak to the Lord. Minus the Holy Spirit's presence, they're mere words. They mean nothing. In fact, the scripture says God doesn't even hear them. He turns his back to them. But when you pray in faith and the Spirit accompanies those words, oh, even the the lack of faith that you have is brought to God as a sweet aroma to the Lord. When you study the tabernacle and you read about the incense rising up to God, it it is a type of prayer. That aroma that God receives from the tabernacle is likened to the prayers that God receives when we pray in faith. So you know what that means? It means that when you read the scripture, when you study the scripture, when you sit under the teaching of the scripture, and the spirit supernaturally engages with your heart and mind, when you pray and the spirit supernaturally engages with you, each time you participate in the Lord's Supper, and the elements are present, and you examine your heart, we grow in faith. We build our confidence in what God has done to us, what what God has done for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. To increase our assurance that we are saved, that we belong to God, and as we live in this body of death, the heart is renewed every day. Renewed every day. And so as the the flesh withers away, we don't lose hope because we know the inside, the heart is being renewed every single day. And that's why the ordinary means of grace are important for us. It gives us that confidence and assurance that what we read is true. What God has done to us and for us is true. It really happened. And that's grace. Because God doesn't have to do that. Instead, the Lord could leave us like a wave that's tossed to and fro. You could be like Virginia Beach crashing on the shore. Life reckless. Unaware. Falling every time you have a trial. Shrinking back every time adversity comes. But because of God's grace, He causes our faith to grow. He preserves us, sanctifies us. He communicates 
confidence and assurance that we are indeed his. God has promised to save you from your sins and also to finish that work. God's work does not stop at our justification. It continues, like I said earlier, strengthening the union that we have with Christ, strengthening that trust we have with him and in him. And since those things are true, let's turn it around. Don't you see how harmful it is to your spiritual life when you neglect those things? If these things are so beneficial for us, don't you see how harmful they are when we neglect them? What would you think about a man who claims to be a Christian, but he doesn't read his Bible? What would you think about the man who claims to be a Christian, but he doesn't pray? He doesn't participate in the Lord's Supper. He claims to be a Christian, but when that cup comes by and the bread, he just says, nope, not for me. What would you think about him? I, I think that dude is lost, more lost than last year's Easter eggs. That's why I think he's that lost. He wouldn't dare claim that he was a Christian. Again, what about the man who faithfully participates in these things? What about him? What about the woman who faithfully participates in the ordinary means of grace? Apply this to your home. Apply this to your family. What do you think of the family who neglects Scripture, prayer in the home? What do you think of the family who neglects reading the Scripture in the home? What do you think of the family who is faithful in reading of the scripture and praying together inside the home? I apply this truth to our church, Green Run Baptist Church. Apply it to us like the Apostle Paul applies it to the Thessalonians. Chapter 1, he addresses them. He tells them about the faith. He, he confirms their salvation when he visited with them on his second missionary journey. And now... In the second letter, he applauds them. He commends them. Because what I left for you to do, you did. And he encourages them more to continue in that faith, continue in that love. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Is our church established on the word of God? Do we examine our doctrine and practices? Do we take semper reformanda seriously? Like we do realize there's some things in our church that God's probably not pleased with. Are we faithful in examining those things? Each one of us examining our hearts, examining our practices, our doctrine. Do we properly administer the Lord's Supper? Is there a time of examination? That's how you grow in faith during the Lord's Supper. You examine your heart. And the Holy Spirit takes those elements and he reveals to you what they represent. He reveals the symbols to you. The body and the blood that was broken and shed for you. And the scripture describes sanctification as semper reformanda. We're always reforming. We're always being sanctified. We're always examining our spiritual lives. We're always examining the practices of our church. Always. It never ends. It should never end. 
And these are all spiritual disciplines of the faith. And when you faithfully participate in these things, they become a means of grace for you. You grow. You are transformed. You are sanctified. We also grow in faith, the second part, we also grow in faith by trusting in God during times of suffering. There isn't a Christian who goes through life without suffering. We all experience trials, we all experience suffering, no one is exempt. But here's the purpose of suffering for Christians. It's different than unbelievers. Our suffering has a different purpose and a different end than what unbelievers experience. Unbelievers, their suffering is just judgment for their sin. It is a foreshadow of the eternal suffering that they will experience after their death. But this isn't true for the believer. We have a much different purpose and end for our suffering. Because one, we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, even suffering, didn't I just say all things, Paul says, all of them. They all work for good for those who love God, including your suffering. So if it's for our good, then we have to believe it's a gift from God. Who wants to admit that? If suffering's for our good, rather, since suffering is for our good, and God is sovereign in all things, therefore, we must conclude that suffering is a gift from the Lord. When a Christian comes to faith in Christ, that relationship is described as a union. We have a union with Christ, and our identity becomes Christ. It is why we're called Christians, because we identify with him. But we always overlook that suffering part of Christ. We, We always overlook the humiliation. We want the exaltation. Glorify me today. Make everything great for me today, Lord. I want the resurrected, glorified Christ. And we just bypass the humiliation of Christ. There aren't two Christ. There's only one. And Christ's life is marked by suffering and glory. And if you wish to identify with him, you must take that same path. A path marked by suffering, humiliation, and eventually glory. We often forget Paul's words in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer. Uh-oh. <laughs> Forget that one. I like the one where Paul says, um, you know, what the work that he's begun in me, he will complete. I like that one. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. It is granted to you. It is God's gift to you. Why? Why is suffering a gift? Because God uses it to transform us into the image of Christ. He uses it for our good. And Christ cannot be separated from his suffering, and neither neither can those be separated from suffering if they wish to identify with him. It's the mark of a true Christian. 
and man's suffering, we often forget this, but suffering has its advantages. And we forget suffering. God uses our suffering to increase our trust in him. Because here's the deal about adversity. None of us have the strength to deliver ourselves from it. Because if we did, it wouldn't be called adversity. Right? The reason why it's called suffering, the reason why it's called adversity, because we're powerless to rescue us. We're powerless to deliver ourselves from it. But the reason why it's called suffering is because Christ has the power to deliver us from that suffering. The fact that it's called suffering means that we have to tarry through it. We have to experience it because we can't relieve ourselves of it. We must depend on God to do that for us. Psalm 34, 9. Anyone suffering this morning? Let me give you this verse. Write it down. Remember it. Psalm 34, 9. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. Everyone. Suffering this morning? Souls burdened? God promises to deliver you out of every single one of them. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the the greatest suffering that we endure in this life is sin. The body of sin, the the flesh eating us and and wrecking us and, and the depravity of the soul. And Paul says in verse 24 of Romans chapter 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And guess what his answer is? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. That's all I got. That's my only hope. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I know. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Because he delivers me from all of my sufferings. Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, To keep me from becoming conceited, God gave me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me. Anybody want to sign up for that? May want to trade lies with the Apostle Paul for a day, maybe. The Lord gave him a demon to harass him so that he would not become conceited because he saw visions that only Colton Burpo was allowed to tell about. Yeah. The Apostle Paul says, I saw visions of heaven, but I'm not allowed to talk about things. But an eight-year-old boy, sure, write a book. Right? Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited, God gave me this thorn in the flesh to harass me. And when Paul pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away, what was God's response? Bro, my grace is sufficient for you. Why are you worried about this? And so Paul says, okay, since that's true, I want all the weakness. Give it all to me. Because whether I'm suffering and you make me strong, I'm really not weak. I'm always strong then. And so Paul says, bring it to me. Paul certainly understood that we are strengthened during our suffering. So evading it, ignoring it, trying to wiggle yourself, confront it. Confront that suffering. Be real with the Lord. Because when you're real, when you're honest with him, 
that you're at your wit's end, he delivers you out of every single affliction. Evading, ignoring, trying to wiggle yourself out from the trial ends up hurting your faith, right? Avoiding it ends up hurting your faith instead of benefiting. But when you confront your trials and you trust in the Lord's deliverance, not only will you be delivered, but you will, be, you will benefit from the experience. The mindset of, I am coming out of the other end of this a more faithful Christian than when I started. I believe it, Lord. I trust in you for this. I, I, from the time, the beginning of my suffering I, and from, from the end, there, there, Lord, I believe that there's a, a, a difference in who I am because of your spirit. You're going to love God more. You're going to trust him more. Because God's purpose of suffering for believers is to use it for our good. Big facts. Facts. And I'll have words with any man who says otherwise. Big facts. So we increase our faith by participating in the ordinary means of grace, sitting under scripture, reading it, prayer, corporate, or in the home, by yourself, driving down Independence Boulevard, whatever. You increase your faith in prayer and... The Lord's Supper, when you properly examine yourself, the Holy Spirit communicates to you that you're truly saved, that you're, you're able to participate because you truly have faith and you grow in faith by trusting in the Lord during times of suffering. What about love for one another? Paul says to the church at Thessalonica that your love has also increased. And Paul says, because of that, I want to encourage you to continue to increasing in love with one another. Not love for yourself, love for one another. And so how does our love for one another increase? One word, serving. Serving. That's how you grow in love. Putting your gifts into action. I mean, that's the whole purpose of gifts anyway, right? If you go back and read the, the main passages in Scripture of the New Testament that talk about our spiritual gifts, they're not for our own sake. They're for the sake of our neighbor. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, he says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That's the purpose of your gifts. To minister to another person. And that's how you grow in love with one another. Love and service are connected in the same way that faith and repentance are. Now, you, you can't have faith without repentance. And you can't have repent, true repentance without true faith. And you can't have true faith without true repentance. You can't have true love for your neighbor without serving him. And vice versa. You can't truly serve your neighbor unless you truly love him. The only way that love, and, that love precedes serving or serving proceed, precedes love is in grammar. That's it. It's in grammar. They work together. They are mutual. They are not preceding one another in service or in order of nature. They're mutual. 
1 John chapter 3, verse 16. We all know John chapter 3, verse 16. What about 1 John? You ever read that one? 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I love the brothers. Great. What are you doing for them? Because that's what John says true love is. That's great. You, you claim these things with your mouth, but what are you doing with your hands? Because that's true love. If you claim to love your brother, but don't serve him, the Bible says you don't truly love your brother. And guess what? You don't have the love of God in you. Do you want to see love increase in Green Love Baptist Church just like spiritual maturity? Do you want to see love increase in your marriage, your relationship with your children? Here it is. This is the key. Take the lower position. Take the lesser position. Begin taking the lesser position. Put the other one in the superior position. Put your spouse, your children, your neighbor's interests above your own, before your own. And when that happens, grace does abound. In order for your love to increase, you first must decrease. It's the way of Christ, right? Christ takes this exalted humiliation, then exalted path. You have to take that same path. If you want to be like Christ. I, I challenge you to go back and read, reread 1 Thessalonians. And you will clearly see Paul instructing the church to grow in the word. To grow in prayer. To grow in love. And because of their obedience to those commands, to those instructions, he writes to them in 2 Thessalonians, great job. You've done it. Now... You have to keep it up. There's still more growth to be done. A faith that shrinks back or a love that grows cold. They're synonymous with false Christians. Not sincere ones. False ones. A love that languishes. A faith that languishes. That's not a characteristic of a sincere Christian. And so we grow in the faith by sitting under the teaching of the word, studying the word in the home, praying together corporately, privately in the home. And as we segue to the Lord's Supper, we grow in the faith by properly examining our hearts. Do you have the seed of faith? Has God given you a measure of faith? Well, yes, I have a measure of faith. If you do, and since you do, God also promises to take that measure of faith and make it greater. Make it greater. And that's what you're going to experience. It's supernatural, right? It, it, you, you can't see it. That's why it always takes someone else coming up to you. Hey, brother, sister, you're, you're really growing in the faith in the last six months. 
Oh, you, you may be asked to teach a Sunday school class, become a deacon or an elder, because there's, there's fruit of this. Right? It's, it's hard to determine these things on our own. But the ordinary means of grace, you participate in them, the Lord promises to, to take that measure of faith that he gave you at your conversion and to strengthen it every day to give you the confidence, to give you a greater level of assurance that, yes, I indeed belong to God. What is our greatest hope? What is our greatest hope according to the catechism? That in life or in death, I belong to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's communicated to us through the ordinary means of grace. And we grow in love by serving one another, using the gifts and the abilities that God has given you to serve. I mentioned last night that we, we don't look into our neighbor's bowl to see what he has. We look into his bowl to see if he has enough. And if he doesn't, we help him with that burden to make sure he has enough. Consider your service to one another. Do you have genuine love for the brothers and sisters? Do you pray for them? Do you pray with them? Do you seek to lighten the burden without being a burden? Do you put their interest above your own? Because that's the way of Christ. (laughs) The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the way of Christ. Thank you.